Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Getting Started With Podcast for Pro Bonos, an Immigration Advocates Network project. In this series, we talk to experts in the field to get their insight on working with particular immigration client subsets. This episode's focus is on utilizing an interpreter in order to work with a client that is more comfortable speaking in a different language. My name is Dina Knott, and I am the Volunteer and Community Education Coordinator in AmeriCorps VISTA at Immigration Advocates Network. Today, I'll be interviewing Nithin Goyle, the Deputy Program Director of the Detained Children's Program at Capital Area Immigrants' Rights Coalition, or CARE Coalition. He has over 10 years of experience advocating for immigrants, including directing the Poultry and Livestock Workers Rights Project at the Legal Aid Farmworker Unit, founding a community law practice focused on humanitarian immigration law and wage theft law, and conducting Know Your Rights workshops. So to start off, can you tell us a bit about your work and your experience with interpreters? Yeah, absolutely. My work has been almost exclusively focused on advocating for the rights of uh, low-income non-citizens or immigrants. Primarily, it's been focused on humanitarian immigration law, such as deportation, removal defense, asylum, U-visas, uh, protections against under the Violence Against Women Act, and T-visas. Um, and then when I was in North Carolina, I also had a practice of representing uh, low-wage undocumented workers in wage theft claims, which is all too common. Fortunately, the vast majority of my clients spoke Spanish, and I, I also speak Spanish, so it wasn't necessary to use an interpreter for those clients. But in my career, I've had to use the services of an interpreter many times in different languages, such as French, Mandarin, Nepali, Mom, and other indigenous languages spoken in Central America and Mexico. And then also, um, <clears throat> since August of last year, my team at CARE and I have represented a number of unaccompanied youth from Afghanistan. These are minors who the U.S. government airlifted out of Afghanistan, but who came to the U.S. without parents. And so we've pretty much regularly had to use the services of an interpreter for those minors in the two main languages spoken in Afghanistan, which are Pashto and Dari. And then lastly, all immigration court proceedings and USCIS interviews are conducted with an interpreter um, if the client doesn't speak English. And so I've had experience using interpreters in those settings too. Those aren't my own interpreters that I choose, but I've had to work with them. Got it. Thank you. Can you speak a little bit to the importance of having legal help in a language that someone is comfortable with versus getting legal help in a language that someone is less comfortable with or doesn't speak at all? Absolutely. So it seems kind of obvious, but language, the ability to communicate, is completely essential if you know we as legal workers want to provide effective representation to our clients. We really can't do our job if we're not understanding our clients well and our clients can't talk to us. I think it comes down to well first and foremost a trust issue. You know the attorney-client relationship can't develop without trust and I don't think you can actually meaningfully have a trusting relationship without the ability to communicate back and forth but just to give you an example, I think that in a conversation with a client, between a client and attorney, if the client is constantly thinking about how they're going to say something rather than just saying it, it's not going to go well. And then the other thing is if, if a client 
you know, might not know how to say a word in English, then they just might leave that part out of their story and go to another part of their story where they know the vocabulary. And then on the flip side, if the attorney, you know, is constantly having to ask their client to repeat themselves, slow down, you know, please use more simple words, that's going to break the flow of the conversation. And I think ultimately erode trust or the ability to create a trusting relationship. And then kind of related to that point, I think that, you know, in our work doing humanitarian immigration rights work, the details are everything. If we don't understand the details before an interview or before a hearing, we're not going to be successful in our claim. Finally, I think it's also worth pointing out that as attorneys, we have ethical obligations, one of which is providing competent representation. Another is we have a duty of communication with our clients. And so both of those, I think, ethical rules are implicated when we're not able to communicate with our clients without the use of an interpreter. And so for those reasons, I think it's really important that we use an interpreter when it's when it's appropriate. Great. Thank you. Say you start working with a client without an interpreter. They say that English is a good language or just that's the default. What are some signals that you might want to get an interpreter in to help with communication? One thing you want to look at is body language and facial expressions. You're going to want to know. So in this situation, if you're speaking to someone who has some mastery of English, but you don't feel comfortable, it might not be understanding everything you're saying. You're going to want to look at how they're acting to you towards when you speak to them. Um, and that you can kind of see that with their body language or facial expression. So if they're understanding something, nodding their head, looking at you, things like that. At the same time, though, when I, while I say that, I'm thinking of there's an inherent power imbalance between a lot of our clients and ourselves as attorneys. And I think that needs to be recognized. I think that a lot of times our clients are going to be more deferential towards us and so may appear to be you know nodding or agreeing with us when in fact they have no clue what's going on and i think that you know recognizing that i think that one workaround that i use and use in my practice after you know some errors is asking the client you know whether they can repeat back what you've just said and not in a condescending sort of way but basically saying that you know, what we've talked about is really complex. I just want to make sure that, you know, you have a good idea of what we've been talking about. Would you mind just summarizing some of the things that I've been talking about? And I think that's actually a good tip for all of our clients, uh, not just those who, you know, might not English might be their, their first language. And then another signal that I look for is when a client is particularly quiet and non-responsive. I mean, I say that again with some pause because being quiet could be attributed to a number of factors for our clients, especially those you know who suffer trauma um, and might not be as comfortable talking to their attorney about those things. But you know, it also could be you know being quiet, non-responsive could also be clients not feeling as comfortable using English as their primary language. And at that point, you might want to say something like because some of these concepts are extremely hard to talk about and explain, what do you think about us using an interpreter? And that'll generate some conversation. And I hopefully, if it is, if it is due to limited English ability, you know, that'll get the ball rolling to get an interpreter for next time. Great. What are common mistakes that lawyers tend to make when they start working with interpreters? 
I mean, there's a lot of potential mistakes and I've seen all these, I've seen these, I've done them myself, especially in my early years. I think also these things can happen. Sometimes they're not avoidable. So don't, you know, don't get too distraught if you have to make these mistakes, it's okay. But some things, some things if you could avoid would be very good. So like, for instance, the attorney should be speaking directly to the client, not to the interpreter. So you you never want to say, interpreter, please tell client X, Y, Z. You want to ask the client directly, like, Mr. So-and-so, what was it like coming to the United States? You know, did you have enough food and water? As opposed to interpreter, did the client have adequate food and water? Relatedly, you want to be looking directly at the client, not the interpreter. You want the client to also be looking at you. You try to maintain a normal conversation with the client. And you're kind of looking at the interpreter as just an aid to facilitate that conversation. So it's not a three-way conversation in a normal sense. You're not all in a circle talking. It's you and the client talking using an aid of the interpreter. To that end, I think another thing that if you can do, positioning of chairs is very important. So you really don't want to have your chairs positioned in a circle. I think best practice is having your chair directly opposite the client's chair, so you're looking at each other, and then having the interpreter's chair next to the client on the side or slightly behind the client. I'm saying all these tips because I think that you just want to make sure that you're developing the relationship with the client so that you can establish that trust, as opposed to the client establishing a relationship of trust with the interpreter and then the interpreter establishing a trust relationship with you. The client and the attorney need to establish that relationship. Right. What are some signs that the interpretation process is maybe not being successful? Signs to look for that communication may be breaking down? Yeah, so this can definitely happen. It's happened to me in the past. And it's, it's yeah, it's important to, you know, there's some, there's definitely some signals that you should look out for when using an interpreter. One is, you know, if the interpreter is having repeated back and forth conversations with the client, that's a big no-no. You don't, you don't want that happening. You want the conversation to be between you and the client. If the client doesn't understand something, the interpreter can explain to you what the client said, and then you can rephrase the question. Another thing to look out for is sometimes if you say a sentence, right, of five words, but the interpreter's talking for a minute, you know something's kind of going on there. Um, <laughs> and that's happened before, you know, because the interpreter is trying, is interpreting, the interpreter is interpreting what you're saying and then trying to express that to the client. And you don't want right. that. Yeah. So, I mean, what I would look out for is if the statements are substantially shorter or longer than your original English statement. Another thing that I, that I look for is if the interpreter is interpreting from the third person. So this is kind of similar to what I was saying before. But for example, if the if the client is saying, you know, I left my home country last year, the interpreter should interpret this as I left my home country last year. It shouldn't be client says he left his home country last year. It should be like a word for word interpretation. Mm -hmm. Got it. Thank you. I think those are some really helpful signs for people to look for. Totally. I also think just real quick that you yeah. know one one thing that I think 
sometimes we're hesitant to do because we want to be respectful and that's totally fine is when interpretation is going badly we tend to just keep going with it it's okay to stop you know it's okay to stop the meeting and try again with a different interpreter that's happened to me before you know we especially during covid you're using a lot of language lines it's all virtual you have no idea who this interpreter is you can stop the meeting and just try it try it again you know obviously just stop it in a, in a respectful way don't make a scene obviously don't make it seem like it's part of the normal course of the meeting but that's okay like you have that option and i think that you should use it if the interpretation is going bad good to know all right my next question is how do you navigate the matter of confidentiality when using an interpreter and you've got this third person in the room yeah it's a really good question um and so yeah confidentiality is absolutely crucial when it comes to using an interpreter you obviously you know you don't want an interpreter telling other people what was said during the meeting as that could prejudice your case it could also completely erode any trust you have with your client and then it could also you know it, it implicates a lot of ethical issues too for failure to supervise a non-lawyer and then also having a third party in the room and then later talking about what was said during that meeting would break your privilege of confidentiality so someone could then for example, in like a worst case scenario, it, it's possible that someone could subpoena that interpreter and make him disclose what was said during that conversation because they're saying that confidentiality has been broken, the privileges no longer exists, and therefore the interpreter is free to disclose what was said. That's a pretty extreme example, but good to be on the radar. That if you don't have confidentiality, that could happen. And I think the ways to avoid that from happening to get into that situation is before the meeting, you know, before your client meeting, you want to sit down with the interpreter and you want to discuss confidentiality. You want to make sure that everything that's been that's going to be said during the meeting will remain confidential. And then another, you know, what you want to do, this is best practice, is to have the interpreter review and sign a confidentiality agreement. And again, like just the the formal act of them going and reading this formal document signing it makes it much more likely that they won't break confidentiality and then finally i wanted to say that i think during the meeting as well before the meeting you're going to want to again repeat that what the interpreter hears today is completely confidential and that i think will help alleviate the concerns a client has from thinking about okay who is this random person here and i don't trust him to kind of helping alleviate those concerns by saying that okay the attorney is saying that it's going to be confidential, that's good. And then it also reminds the interpreter that everything said during the meeting should remain confidential. Right. So you're reinforcing it for the interpreter and you're putting that client at ease. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, if a new pro bono lawyer is not working with an organization that provides interpreters and they come across a situation with a client where they feel an interpreter would be helpful, how would you advise they go about finding someone to facilitate communication with a client? Yeah, that's a great question. So some ways, some resources that they can use would be, that I found helpful actually in the past, because you know, if, if, you're, if your client can't afford to pay for an interpreter or you know, you're working at a nonprofit or you're working in a situation where you don't have the income to purchase services of an interpreter, a great resource is community organizations in your area. 
that work with your client's community. They might be able to provide an interpreter for you. I'm also sometimes have used other attorneys or support staff, obviously not opposing counsel, but you know, people who are in your firm <laughs> um, or other attorneys, you know, obviously want everyone to sign a confidentiality agreement. Um, and then one really untapped resource, which I haven't used ever, but I was reading about is, um, so different colleges and universities have foreign language programs. And I was seeing that some people actually reach out to them as well, those programs, to see if one of their students would be willing to serve as an interpreter. And those would all be free, so I'm concerned. And then, you know, if you can't, obviously if none of those work out, you can go to the fee-based services, you can do a Google search. There's some services that we, we use, some companies like called Cielo, Genie, or Pacific. If you are picking interpreter though, and if you can, I know this sometimes very hard, try really hard to avoid using family members or friends of your clients. I know for a lot of people, it's unavoidable, but it really is not the best uh, approach because your clients can be talking about really sensitive issues. They might not want people in their family knowing about these things, or their family or friends might be trying to you know, say things that they know they want the lawyer to hear, so they might be embellishing the story. Uh, it just, people have used family members and friends. It's not the best approach. So if you can try to avoid it. And then the other thing I think about too is, you know, being sensitive to gender uh, and race when choosing an interpreter. You know, sometimes clients feel more comfortable with uh, interpreters, for example, who are female talking about being traumatized as a result of a domestic relationship with domestic abuse and things like that. So. Those are the couple suggestions I have in trying to find an interpreter. Thanks for your insight on that. Before we finish off the podcast, is there anything else you wanted to mention or bring up? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, there's so much to be said about using interpreters. Some situations that I've been in is where clients can speak in English. It's okay, they can get by, but it's just not good enough to do like a full-on asylum interview. In those situations, you know, you don't want to just say, hey, we need an interpreter. Boom, like, let's get an interpreter. And I think the reason for that is, I think language ability, like our ability to communicate what language we speak in is part and parcel of, like, it's completely, it's inherently tied up with power and privilege in our society. I think, for example, in the U.S., like, we have no official language, but there is a common perception that to speak English is to be American. And if you don't speak English, you're a foreigner or an outsider or somehow less than. It's not right, but that's how power, I think, and privilege are working in our society. Um, and I think that language ability similarly also maps onto our ideas of race. So like, for example, with me, there's been many, many times where people have come up to me and said, wow, we can't believe you speak English or I'm surprised you speak English so well. <laughs> um, yeah. This was including like police officers as well. But so I guess the reason I'm saying all that is because it's not appropriate to just tell a client who speaks okay English and feels like they speak okay English to just be like, you know what, we need an interpreter. You should be a little bit more compassionate than that. Like something that I do is kind of tell clients that, hey, I think your English is really great. Some of these concepts are really hard to talk about and explain. I think we could have a much better communication if we use an interpreter but I wanted to get your thoughts on that. What do you think? That has always worked for me and it's a little bit more sensitive than just being like, 
we need interpreter now. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, thank you so much for all of those thoughts. I think this has been really helpful and interesting. Yeah, my pleasure. A lot to say on this topic and so glad we're doing a podcast on it.